and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Mir Sobaradaran, a Professor of Law at the University of Georgia School of Law, and we will dis- discuss her book, The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap, which was recently published by Harvard University Press. So welcome to the program. Thanks Mirza. for having me, Brian. This oh, is great. the pleasure is all mine. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's great to see you again. Likewise. And um, so fun to talk to one of my former law school classmates. Totally. <laughs> so, way um, back. Yeah, so your book obviously is fantastic and it's been you. incredibly successful for obvious mm. reasons. <laughs> but, um, but I'm really looking forward to, to talking. Mm-hmm you about it. Um, I was wondering if maybe we could start by framing your project in relation to what seems to me kind of like a misperception about the nature of um, black banking, quote unquote, black capitalism, Mm -hmm. and kind of the nature of the problem at at stake. Because it seems like you're bringing a, a really corrective sort of mm-hmm. viewpoint to this issue. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of share what the conventional wisdom was yeah. and what, you know, as a way of providing a prelude for your intervention. Yeah. So um, uh, I guess, I mean, let me let me just talk about a recent event. So Trump just released uh, this program called Opportunity Zones, and you've got, you know, people like Cory Booker out there saying like, oh, well, the, you know, these Opportunity Zones, these, you know, and I'm going to call them black ghettos um, because uh, ghetto, I think, is more of an appropriate word here, right? Because they were not built uh, voluntarily. They were, you know, places of segregation. So the, the idea, so Cory Booker says these are, um, these are domestic emerging markets and we're going to have investments and it's going to be a win-win. And so the idea is what these sectors and what the black population needs is, you know, um, banks and entrepreneurship and investment and, and all of this stuff, right? That that it is uh, lack of that sort of, you know, capitalist capitalism to sort of flourish there. And and um, and I and that's just not right, right? So uh, so the that's not the the myth, the central myth that my book you know, gets to, but it do, it is one that emerged out of some of the things that sort of happened post Nixon, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I think one of the central myths is that um, the that banks or businesses or the creation of black banks or businesses can remedy um, these problems, and and the assumption is that well, you know, white banks or white businesses are discriminating, right? So if they weren't discriminating, then we could, um, you know, have a flourishing economy. Um, but uh, what I try to show is just the structural aspects of that inequality and how you can throw in black banks and businesses, you can throw in investors, but unless you have, you ch- fundamentally change the way capital accrues unto itself, then you're not going to change that, that sy- systemic inequality. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the book really takes on a huge chunk right. of history. Right. I mean, you start essentially more or less, with the end of the Civil War. Yes, 1865, yeah. <laughs> bring the book right. all the way up to mm-hmm. all the way up to the present. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one thing that really struck me about the story you tell mm-hmm. is how it seemed like the same story happening over and mm-hmm. over again mm-hmm. in different periods of mm-hmm. 
of American history. This kind of this consistent effort by mm-hmm. the African American mm-hmm. community mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. engage with um, economic wealth generation, consistently being frustrated, and the ver- the variety seemed to be in all the different ways that um, white America came up with to frustrate black black entrepreneurialism. Yeah. So I mean, I guess, and 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 I don't want to. I don't want to pretend like there's all these villains that are all the same and it's like the same book. The The problem is that we have this race, racial sort of class divide, right? So um, black labor has always been sort of endemic to the system that we've created. And I won't call it capitalism because I don't think it's quite capitalism, right? Jim Crow mm-hmm. is not capitalism. Um, neither is segregation. Those are state interventions. But what the myth of sort of American racial hierarchy has been is that, you know, the the, the browner you are, the more you should be labor. Mm-hmm. And the whiter you are, the more you should be capital, right? I mean, that, that kind of like mapped out. At some points it was spelled out directly, and at others it was just sort of like, this is the way things are, and so it just gets fixed in the brain. So... So I think for the black population to have bre- to break out, it would it has required um, a lot of sort of changing of those norms, and we just haven't yet to do that. And so that's why the story mm-hmm. repeats, right? So I tell the story of the Freedmen's Bank, right? Mm-hmm. So th- th- there are these pivotal moments where you think that something could happen, and there have only been two, I think. Um, one being post-Civil War, so Reconstruction era, and the other being post-Civil Rights, where mm-hmm. you really have this focus on this harsh injustice and for a variety of reasons like the nation focuses on this right so civil war obviously a lot of different things come come to the fore and we have this you know period of reconstruction where it's like okay how do we make this right so land was on the table but land was never going to be possible and to keep the southern sort of like you know um economy in place and so land was off the table and then um so instead of land you get this savings bank and um and i think that was uh, it's something that people don't quite talk about, the Freedman Savings Bank, um, but it's this dramatic failure. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's 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 sort of, you know, something that both the reformers, you know, the reformers want and the South is just, it's fine, right? It's not a big deal. Um, and it, it fails um, because, you know, the capital uh, from the slaves comes into it and the sort of, you know, it gets speculated away in um in the stock market. Um, and then you have post-civil rights. You've got these two strands of the civil rights movement. You've got, you know, black nationalists. You have, um, you know, Martin Luther King's uh, coalition. And both are pushing for specifically economic agendas, one being like populist sort of poor people's movement, the other being just reparations and autonomy, sort of along the lines of like anti-colonialism abroad. Neither is um, is, is really accepted by 1968, and so you get black capitalism. Mm. Um, and so so I think, you know, yes, like history isn't exactly the same, but it does rhyme in a way. And so it is, you do have this, right, like avenues for meaningful reform that would have been costly being, you know, uh, subverted by this other thing that looks kind of like that thing, but it's yeah. not quite. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think we should return to that theme yeah. in, in a moment. But... One thing that really struck me about mm-hmm. your book that I really liked mm-hmm. and that I felt like reflected sort of the special value you brought to the mm-hmm. subject as someone with a finance and corporate law background is that it felt like in some ways you were using like black banks and black banking mm-hmm. as a metaphor mm-hmm. for 
mm-hmm. black engagement with and and you know black entrepreneurialism and efforts to develop the economic health of the black community. But at the same time, you also have, I think, a really kind of sophisticated read yeah. on why it was that these banks structurally were incapable of mm-hmm. succeeding, um, both because of discrimination and segregation, but also because of kind of fundamental aspects of capital formation mm-hmm. and their mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. role in the economy and to other banks. I know that's kind of a big question, but no, no, no. maybe you yeah. can touch on that a little bit well, because well, I think yeah. it's just really fascinating. Thank you. Well, I'll say one thing. It's, it's, I always can tell that as someone who inter- is interviewing me hasn't read the book when they say something like, well, tell me about black banks. And it's like, the book is not about black, right? So like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you can, and I, and I don't mean it as like a, like yeah. I'm trying to hide the ball, but I'm uh, like you said, I'm using <clears throat> black banks more as like a mirror, because I think what black, what banking in general, but specifically black banking shows is banks don't, banks are like, they're, they're like the movers of capital, right? Mm-hmm. They're neither, you know, I, I get frustrated by people like, oh, the greedy bankers. They're not any more greedy than the rest of us, right? Like banks are a system that reflects, right, the broader economy. And yes, you know, by allowing them to get certain ways, we create a different kinds of kind of system and we can talk about you know how Hamilton would have wanted and Jefferson, but it's not the banks. Mm. The banks don't matter here. I don't mm. care about the banks. It's what the banks show about the economy. Mm. So what these banks have shown, I mean, there's a couple things, right? One is that, um, look, in order to have wealth creation, you need capital to begin with, right? That's and b- banks know that, and you're right. Every banker understands that you have to have, you know, if you're going to serve the needs of the community, if you're going to create wealth, you need some wealth to begin with, right? You Mm -hmm. need some sort of collateral or whatever. And what you have in these communities is on, you know, the asset side of the balance sheet and on the liability side of the black banks, both sides are sort of um, drawn down by the specific nature of poverty that they're trying to alleviate. So the very thing that they're trying to remedy is the thing that Mm -hmm. impedes their ability to do it, right? So you've got assets, sort of like home loans, right? It, for most of history, unfortunately, until today, home values in black neighborhoods don't appreciate over time. So once a neighborhood tips into being not just majority black, even mm-hmm. like over like a 10% threshold, those homes are not desirable to the broader market. And so they're not um, appreciating in value. So that's those are bank assets. Those are loans. On the liability side are, are the deposits, right? And so banks need... Um, a lot of big deposits that are going to stay there in order to lend them, right? That's less risk, less overhead, especially in past eras. But even today, that's why banks don't give small accounts. Like, they don't want your $2,000, right? So this is, this is my particular frustration with this, like, bank black movement. Hey, everyone, send your $10 to the banks. And I ask the black bankers, I'm like, what are you doing with these deposits? Yeah. They're like, well, you know, we're dealing with it. But, yeah. you know, so so the liabilities are, you know, too small too volatile, and the assets are not appreciating. And so that that's a toxic mix for a bank. And so you can take deposits from blacks and you can lend to blacks, but there's no way you can grow that wealth in that community if you're not sort of embedded in that larger system, right? So the way that banks create money is through that lending and then it coming back, but the it has to come back in. And so if, if you've got a segregated economy, that money is always going to flow toward where the other money is, right? Mm-hmm. Money is like there's this principle in chemistry. Forget 
organic, organic chemistry was my favorite class in college. And there's a couple of things that I remembered. And one is like carbons. Anyway, so yeah. carbon, do you, do you ever take organic? No. <laughs> Basically like, like likes like, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like this is why we've had unit banking for most of history is that Jefferson and, you know, the populace understood that if you let banks if you let the money go wherever, it's always going to go to Wall Street, mm-hmm. right? And so they forced it to not. So if you're going to have a bank in Lexington, Kentucky, that's that's it. That's the only bank mm-hmm. you get. You don't get to have a branch in Wall Street and shoot the money there because they knew that Lexington would then not have a bank, right? And that's what's happening, essentially. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, and one of the things that was interesting sort of in the story that you tell of all of these efforts to mm-hmm. create financially viable mm-hmm. black banks was how the the different ways that kind of de facto and de jure seg- segregation and discrimination were used mm-hmm. to prevent the banks from having the kind of access to capital mm-hmm. it seems like you would actually need for them to be successful and even to really block them out of working uh, in the first place, you talked about like banks being denied charters, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and lacking access to to to, to credit, yeah, and, right, and these kinds of. And I was like, wow, you know, it never occurred to right. me like just how nuts and bolts right. the problems could be that yeah. would make it impossible. Yeah, I mean, the chartering thing was fascinating, right? So I expected so as I was doing this research, like you know, there's a couple banks in Chicago, and I expected there to be look, what are the big centers, right? Baltimore. Detroit, Chicago, Harlem. And I expected that Harlem would have the most banks. That was the most concentrated black community. And as I started digging into this, um, I saw all these newspaper articles during that time of these bank charters being denied. I'm like, surely that can't be the whole story. Mm -hmm. But as I dug deeper, it looks like what was happening in Harlem. So Chicago had its banks and, you know, Baltimore. And this is pre-Great Depression. Harlem kept trying to charter banks. There was a ton of interested parties because Harlem was a really profitable black population. What was happening was that Chase Manhattan had a bunch of, um, you know, bank branches uptown in Harlem. And what they were doing was taking deposits and lending them downtown. And I actually found a master's thesis from a Chase employee who worked in the Harlem branch saying essentially this. He from, was like, I saw from yes, like 1930 or so. 1930 something. I even read the footnotes. You do. I love it. Oh, you're the best reader. I was like, what is he saying? And so he's like, we don't lend because it's a risk because the, the black blacks don't know how to do business. I'm like, talk about like self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. right? So so they're taking the, the deposits uptown, taking him downtown. He's explaining exactly like, he's, he's like a woke banker, right? Because he's thinking that he's helping, right? But meanwhile, he's like giving up all the dirty laundry, right? Um, So then I kind of looked around and it looks like the Chase, you know, was part of the New York Banking Commission that was giving out charters. And New York, you know, every state has huge discretion. They don't have to tell you why. They can just say no charter. So that seems like what was happening. You know, I can't Mm -hmm. prove it, but it looks like they were denying charters um, to these black banks. And so you know, um, there's this great Baldwin quote that I found after I wrote the book. But, kind of, you know, Baldwin grew up in Harlem, and he talks about Chase Manhattan. And he talks about, you know, um, 
white is a metaphor for power, and that's another way of describing Chase Manhattan Bank. <laughs> and it doesn't make sense unless you sort of see this landscape. Like, Chase mm. was, like, occupying Harlem, mm. taking the deposits. And I don't know if Baldwin knew of the workings of Chase, but mm. anyway, that was a fantastic quote that I did not get to include in the book, so I will just say right here. <laughs> um the other thing was uh, the clearinghouses, right? So in Chicago, Jesse Bingo was like this big black banker, the biggest sort of best, most profitable black bank. And in the days pre-FDIC insurance, good bankers um, joined up in a clearinghouse. So a clearinghouse was like very sophisticated. You would add, it's like an insurance, right? So you would pay premiums. Only great banks got to be in it. And um, he joined the Chicago Clearinghouse, which was this great clearinghouse. And as his bank is failing during the Great Depression, he calls on the clearinghouse to back him up, and they say no. And and it's not that they didn't save every other bank in that clearinghouse. They they saved and not Bingas. Um, so there's all these ways in which, you know, or just getting liquidity, right? If you have a run, um, pre-FDIC insurance, you just need buddies. You need a yeah. network to, like, come call in and just cover you for a little bit. And... And um, black banks didn't have enough. I mean, one of the interesting bankers, and I try to highlight her in the book. I think you can write a whole book about um, mm. Maggie Walker. Um, she's the first woman banker, uh, period, and um, owns this bank in Richmond. And she covers for a bunch of banks. She merges several banks into hers during the Great Depression. Mm. She becomes the first you know, African-American conducted in the Virginia Bankers Association. She's just this like mm. really savvy businesswoman. And what she does is provide liquidity to other black banks. And so she gives a speech, like, right before the Great Depression. She's like, look, like, if there's, like, what, 15 big black bankers, like, we have to be saving each other during these things. And so they were creating these networks, uh, but it just wasn't enough. Um, you really do, you need that capital um, if you're a bank to succeed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, and you tell a lot of really interesting, like, Personality-driven and region-driven stories mm -hmm. in the book, and one I could have told more. <laughs> There's so sure. many interesting stories. Sure. I feel I'm like sure. don't get wrapped up in this. And <laughs> one that really struck me was a sort of almost like a tale of two cities story that uh, you told about the relationship between Durham uh, and, and Tulsa. Yes. Tulsa. Yeah. Um, and the sort of the history of these early Black Wall Streets, which yeah. I really think has not gotten the attention it, yeah. <laughs> it deserves. But I, I was wondering if you could kind of yeah. give people, because there's just so much bound up in yeah. that story about yeah. sort of entrepreneurialism, mm -hmm. but also sort of the negotiation yeah. that yeah. African Americans mm -hmm. had to do mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with with bluntly racism. Yeah, absolutely. So Durham is, so, you know, so backing up, so Booker T. Washington has this theory that, you know, the way toward equality is first you're going to be segregated and you don't need to change anything politically. What you need to do is accrue wealth and wealth will get, get you respect. And he has this whole thing like if, you, if a black man has a mortgage on a white man's house, he's going to respect him, right? If a black man gets in the front car of the whatever train, like he's going to get respect, right? And that, that actually isn't what happens, right? If a black man has a mortgage on a white man's house, they're going to get the mob to in those days, and they're going to do some violence, right? Um, so this is what happens in Tulsa is, and as opposed to Durham. So Durham and Tulsa are the two, in, in the South, major capitals of black wealth. And there's several reasons, right? Tulsa, blacks got there early on. There was some oil wealth that was shared equally. And so the black um, center of town, Greenwood, was 
tons of beautiful churches and businesses and lots of money. And it was central in the town. Um, then there was uh, Durham and same thing. There was like the tobacco industry. Everyone had jobs. It was just this thriving economy. And so the black, the, the major uh, black businesses were there. So, right. So you have mechanics and farmers bank, you have the insurance fund, you've got you know, paper manufacturing, socks, all sorts of industry run by blacks there. It's still, you know, the basis of the black middle class. So Durham sort of, I guess, for some 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 reason, they kind of decide to um, play along with the white power structure in a way that doesn't threaten anybody. So they mm. make their buildings. They they have essentially they say this like we will not make our buildings larger than any of the other buildings, right? So they have small buildings. They're not they don't take up like prime real estate. They're not flashy. They kind of get along, play along, and they say this right. The mayor says we all get along, we all play along, and so Durham is able to thrive. Tulsa, on the other hand, no. There's a lot of, uh, you know, ostentatious church buildings and the and the black men. Um, so it's a it's a hub of the uh, NAACP, and they're armed. So um, they all, you know, exercise their Second Amendment rights and um, are sort of, you know, just like powerful and not backing down from confrontation. So what happens in Tulsa is what happens everywhere in the South um, is, you know. Uh, some girl allegedly gets, uh, you know, harassed by some boy. But obviously, you know, that's not – that's the spark. But for months before, there was a slight recession and uh, there was a lot of black businesses that were getting these anonymous things on their doors like you better leave, right? So a lot of threats. And then that spark – so the kid – the black kid gets put in jail and there's a white mob that comes around the jail and then the armed black men in Tulsa come out to protect this kid – Someone fires a shot, and then it's just mayhem. So the city gets burned to the ground. And it's really, I mean, what's interesting, what we don't talk about, and W. Du Bois, W. E. Du Bois does a great job just cataloging this, is the residents of Tulsa are basically like refugees. They're given these badges, these identification badges, they, badges, they have nothing, and they're just sent out of the town, right? So the whole community is demolished um, and burnt down and and. And there's violence, obviously, on both sides, but it's not, right? It's it, uh, the result is that the black community is is yes. devastated. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and you know, I think one could say it's because uh, they had too they had too much wealth and it was threatening. Um, mm-hmm. And there is this there's this theory of you know sort of minority <clears throat> majority a host culture. I can't remember the exact theory I had in the book, mm-hmm. but basically, like you know, they talk about. Immigrants like Chinese in, in Japan or Jews in Germany or other sort of successful minority groups mm-hmm. in host countries and how that during an economic d- depression that turns on you. Yeah, when, and you suggest in the book that part of this is like minorities in host mm-hmm. communities seem to be most successful or least um, yeah. hated. Yeah. I guess the term, it's probably better. Um when they go into fields of endeavor that the host community yeah. is less interested in yeah. in pursuing. And it seemed like you told a similar story about some of the areas where African-American entrepreneurs were yeah. most successful, like in the insurance business. Absolutely. So I mean, you find these niche markets. I mean, the biggest billionaires, millionaires, sorry, in, um, in the black community were made money in industries that whites just didn't touch, right? So one was um, funeral homes. Uh, white Southerners would not touch black bodies, and so there's this 
booming industry in funeral homes. So, you know, this idea that like blacks weren't entrepreneurs, like look at the places where there were markets and they yeah. were in it, right? Yeah. Um, there's that, there's insurance. Um, there was this big, you know, I think I put it in the book, but this um, this guy, Hoffman or something, writes this, you know, statistical, scientific thing for um, Prudential or MetLife or whatever, saying something like um, blacks as a race are going extinct. And so they should not be insured. Like he has all these measurements, right? Like yeah. chest size and brain size. And, and like it's not, he says, it's not malnourishment. It's not hard work. It's their race. So he talks about race traits. And so yeah. there are these insurance companies that are like, we're just not going to insure blacks. And so there you go, yeah. black insurance. Well, the, and the, and the yeah. other thing that struck me about that story that I thought was yeah. really interesting was the way you talked about the role of trust yes. in insurance oh, yes. and how critical it is to yes. have trust between the right. customer and the insurance agent yeah. in order for the relationship to actually be yeah. a possibility. Yeah, and it's the same thing with banks, right? Um, you have to trust, you have to keep your deposits in. You have to keep paying your premiums. You need this long-term relationships. And so one of the ways in which racism um, erodes entrepreneurialism is trust, right? Like, And it's, it's one of these soft things, right? Mm-hmm. But in order for a business to succeed, you have to give them some goodwill beyond just your money. And this is where racism undercuts. Um, mm-hmm. And this is where what's, what's fascinating to me is when black banks fail, you have someone like Carter Woodson saying, the black community didn't trust our banks and that's why we failed. We don't trust our... So, so there's this self, like, you know, um, flagellation here saying, like, we, can, we don't trust our own things. And there is... There is data on this. Actually, even blacks consider white, considered at the time, and still probably do considered white establishments more trustworthy or more, you know, better products or whatever. And that, again, is is a is an uh, outgrowth of racism. I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, in other countries, right? Um, I grew up in Iran, and everything, we call it Farangi, which was like foreign, was better. If it was foreign, it was like good. If it was Iranian, it was garbage. And most of the time it's true, right? Because we have this like, corrupt horrible market but not all the things right like fruit you know like if you had like a banana from abroad like that was gonna taste better than one from home and it's it's all the ways or you know just like whiteness or you know like i mean this is probably way tangential but nose jobs right everyone in iran has a nose job and they get these tiny little noses that are like you know maybe someone in some like waspy protestant town has those tiny noses but no one in my part of the world has a natural <laughs> nose like that mm. and 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 it's you know um skin bleaching blah 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 but it was a similar thing like maybe that's way off field but coming back to that it is this sense of like you know um the community and trust that eroded just the bottom line of these businesses forget all the other things that go with that. Um, mm. But the same with banks, you know, the runs. And I actually, I don't think black banks were l- less trusted by their um, communities. And part of the reason they weren't is because a lot of these banks, especially pre-1920, was that the banks were, were part and parcel of the church mm. and the fraternal society. And it was, you know, your pastor on Sunday telling you to go invest. And mm. Maggie Walker's bank is emblematic, right? She was... You know, this woman's group is like a secret society. And, and, and by secret society, that was just like their social groups. Um, so uh, so those those banks did a lot better than those that tried to go it alone. Yeah. Yeah. We also suggest, though, that that kind of social role 
of yeah. the banking also made it harder for them to yes. be oh, gosh. financially successful uh, yes. in the sort of traditional banking sense of maximizing returns on capital. Totally. This was actually the most devastating part of reading some of these memoirs of black bankers um, because for a black banker, you're wearing like five different hats. First of all, a lot of them come from come to banking from either you know preaching, community activism, mm-hmm. or you know like Jackie Robinson, right? Uh, like uh, those and, are all traditional backgrounds for bankers, right? Right, you know, right. <laughs> like they don't come into it to try to get money. They're coming into it because their community needs a bank, and like they should just do it, right? And so what you have is these banks then caught caught between like making good loans and giving loans to the people in their town that need it. And that's how the original insurance funds went bankrupt is because they would do like a, like an informal insurance fund for like the widows and all. And and it was like, you know, it was just the self-selection of like the poorest and the sickest. And you're not going to deny people burial rights and sickness. So all the early black insurers went bankrupt because they were like serving the community. It wasn't profitable. Um, uh, and the b- black banks, it was the same thing. I mean, Jackie Robinson uh, talks about this. Like, he wants to serve the black community, and he feels like there's all these demands from community members saying, you need to give us this loan. You started this bank, you know, and yet, you know, the regulators are breathing down his neck. Um, and he, he, I, reading his last, his autobiography, which he wrote before he dies, sort of prematurely, I think the bank kills him. Um it's the stress of just keeping a bank profitable, meeting the needs of the community. And, and a lot of these bankers over time talk about this. Um, Wesley Moran, who started um, a Carver Bank in, in Manhattan also, he comes as a preacher, starts to own the bank. He's a preacher, civil rights you know, leader. And, and Martin Luther King was not unique in this way, right? Preacher, civil rights leader, and his wife is you know, a banker. He's on the board of a bank. You know, there, there were a lot of hats, and, and a lot of these men wore them. Yeah. Well, so as you know, yeah. I have a longstanding interest in, in Richard Nixon. Yeah, me too. So I, would, I would be remiss <laughs> well, I if I didn't ask you about the fascinating Richard Nixon-oriented story you tell. I feel like book. I need to ask yeah. you about your Richard Nixon fascination <laughs> first. <laughs> so, but what I really, what I really, I, I hate to say liked because it's yeah. so gross but the story you tell about how Richard Nixon mm-hmm. sort of took black nationalism uh, and rebranded it as black capitalism. Totally. And I, it's a huge story. A but huge it, story. But if you could, like, give it in a nutshell. Okay. I mean, it's just such a, yeah. uh, I mean, paradigmatic. In a nutshell, of, I mean, in a nutshell, once I was in the archives – of Nixon, I was like, this is the book I should have wrote. And as I'm finishing the book, I'm like, nothing is more interesting than this right here, right? Um, and I wish, and if I could write it again, I would just write chapter six. And if you want to read the book, just read chapter six. But um, black capitalism was essentially, I mean, Nixon's brilliant, right? He takes, there's these, you know, the integrationist push, you know, George Romney is like the representative of that, right? So we've got to integrate, you've got the Kerner Commission, Johnson's FHA, all of this push for integration. Nixon understands very clearly that he cannot force integration. And then there's the Black Power movement, right? There's mm-hmm. you know riots and violence, there's black nationalism, there's the Black Panthers. I mean, this is like an insurrection, right? Horribly 
just terrifying to people, right? They've got guns. They're talking about, like, linking up with Cuba and the communists. I mean, this is scary stuff. And they're asking for reparations. So what Nixon does is, like, split the baby, literally cut the baby in half. No one gets the baby, right? And what he... What he says is, fine, you want black power, I'll give you black power. You want, you know, black control, I'll give you black control. But he doesn't actually mean it the way they meant it. So he co-ops this language of black power and says, yes, absolutely black power and black business. And so we're going to keep segregation because that seems to be what you're asking for. And um, I mean, just to like back up, like what they're asking for, what the black nationalists are asking for is sovereignty, right? So it really is like a cross-colonial thing, right? Mm. They're in Cuba. They're saying like anti-colonialization, mm. like give us sovereignty of the black ghetto. In other words, like we want to control it. That's our land, right? Malcolm X says revolution's about land and there's going to be blood, right? So it's very violent. Um, and he says, okay, you have black power. And so we're going to put some treasury deposits in black banks and we're going to create this office of minority business enterprise and tell stories about successful black businesses and do affirmative action, which is his thing, right? Contracts set aside, all this stuff. And and it's sort of this neutralizing thing, right? He takes, like, the sting out of the Black Panthers. Meanwhile, I mean, the FBI is also hunting them down, right? So that's not just mm-hmm. the only thing he's doing is taking the rhetoric out, but he sort of cuts integration efforts off, um, exiles Romney to, like, Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. And And just kind of maneuvers this path and so looping it back to the beginning um we're still talking about nixon's black capitalism when we talk about entrepreneur zones when cory booker comes out and says these are emerging markets and in you know like win-win entrepreneur blah 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 right obama did this clinton went hard on this right so his whole lower middle income uh lm whatever tax credits cdfi community development um, financial institutions, um, the microcredit, Mm -hmm. um, this is all based on black capitalism. They're not saying Nixon, but it was just really clever. Mm -hmm. And it it gets you through that racial landmine, and it doesn't do anything. I mean, we've had 50 years of black capitalism, but no capital. And then you can tell the story, well, they're just not, they're just lazy. They're not really being entrepreneurs. And that's bunk, uh, right? Uh, There is no capital. In black capitalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so I think that's like the the perfect way to kind of sum up right. the, the conversation, right? right? I mean, what you do in your book is kind of chronicle all of these sort of two-faced yeah. efforts at, at helping mm-hmm. black people succeed mm-hmm. economically. But you suggest that there's sort of more fundamental problems or more fundamental things yeah. that need to be done. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what... Yeah, what do you think those are. I mean, the fundamental things that need to be done is just a recognition of how much state engineering, how much government engineering went into the racial wealth gap, and and how leaving it to the market is such a cop out. You know, I'm not anti-market. I'm not one of these people who says cap. And there is this growing movement that says capitalism is inherently racist. I don't think that. I just don't think we've ever had capitalism in in America. You know, we've had so much state subsidies. And think of that what you will. It is what it is, right? Um, You had the Homestead Act. You had the FHA. You had all of these credit mechanisms. And yet, when you have black communities saying, okay, we want this 
thing, then it's like, oh, well, capitalism. So you're using capitalism as a weapon, you know, and, and I think we just have to get real about what, what we do and what we don't do. And so the real reforms are pick your poison. I mean, you can choose integration. I think that's great. Or you can choose capital, like reparations. And, and that's great too. I mean, I, I'm an integrationist at heart, but I'm not about to tell people how mm-hmm. to live their lives. Like, I do think there is something beautiful about the culture of a community, mm-hmm. um, but it needs to be a community that's self-selected. It can't be one that is just segregated away. Um, mm-hmm. So you, you see this with other communities, right? Italians, Irish, the rest Jews, you know, Asians to some extent. You come in and you can choose to assimilate or not. And to some extent, we haven't given that choice to blacks. Mm-hmm. Maybe going forward, we will. But you, you, once you've got this, you know, um, this sort of geographical zone of poverty and exclusion, you can opportunity, you can emerging market that all you want. It's not going to grow capital from a rock, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is really interesting that it seems to me people call it reparations because they don't want to call it redistribution. Right. Right. Yeah, sure. Call it whatever you want. I mean, you could call it like, you know, flowers. But like what it needs to be is a recognition of just what was what was taken away. Yeah. Not just taken away, but what was excluded, you mm-hmm. know? Um I mean, the FHA we talk about redlining, but like to really understand how that mortgage credit depriving people of mortgage credit during those pivotal eras really was a intergenerational lack of wealth. I mean, mm-hmm. and those decisions were made purely based on race. I mean, I've looked at some of these maps. Like in Atlanta, I show my class, um, you've got side-by-side communities, one white, blue-collar, one black business professionals, right by Morehouse and Spellman. And before the FHA bureaucrats come into town, those are roughly the same. The black homes are going for pretty good money. And then the FHA decides just because, and they say, these are business professionals, this is the best, quote, best Negro area in the state, okay? Red zone, no credit, right? So once they make those decisions, that that lasts a long time. I mean, those FHA maps were effective until the 60s. Mm, so, mm, mm. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks so much, Marissa. Thank you, Brian. This is a great this conversation. Yeah. yeah. Richard Nixon speaks on black capitalism. It's no longer enough that white-owned enterprises employ greater number of Negroes, whether as laborers or middle management personnel. This is needed, but it has to be accompanied by an expansion of black ownership, of black capitalism. We need more black employers, more black businesses. Integration must come, but in order for it to come on a sound and equal basis, the black community has to be built from within even as the old barriers between black and white are dismantled from without. We have to get private enterprise into the ghetto. But at the same time, we have to get the people of the ghetto into private enterprise as workers, as managers, as owners. These past few years have been a long night of the American spirit. It's time we let in the sun. It's time to move past the old civil rights and to bridge the gap between freedom and dignity, between promise and fulfillment. The preceding pre-recorded political announcement was paid for by the Michigan-Nixon Agnew Committee.